Father in heaven, this morning we want to follow Jesus, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. We want him to be the leader in our lives. Father, as we get closer to this dark time in earth's history that the Bible has told us much about, may the example of Jesus be the guiding force in our lives. Father, bless us this morning as we tread very carefully on sacred ground, as we look at the closing scenes of Jesus' life. May you speak to our hearts. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our theme Bible passage as we've been going through our series, Crisis at the Close, has been Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4. We read it together in our scripture reading this morning. But the part of the passage that I want to focus on, as we've been focusing on week after week, is the part where the Bible says, these are they which follow the Lamb. What's the next word there? Wherever he goes. This is, again, talking about the 144,000, those who are alive on earth right before Jesus comes back, those who have become so accustomed to following Jesus, no matter where he leads them to go, that's where they want to be. The 144,000, the redeemed of God's people, they don't just follow Jesus or follow the Lamb in the times of peace and prosperity, but they follow him also in the times of trial and adversity. This is the passage that needs to be a reality in our lives, that we will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Would you say amen? Now, as we follow the Lamb wherever He goes, we're told in inspiration, we've read this statement many times, that before we can follow Jesus in the courts above, we first have to become accustomed to following Him where? Here below. In fact, she tells us it's our privilege to be able to follow Him here below. And I look forward to that becoming a reality in my life and in your life and in our lives collectively as a church as we follow the Lamb being, uh, preparing for this crisis at the close. Now this morning I want to share with you a passage of Scripture as we begin, one that has touched my heart many times as I have read it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Peter says this, For even here unto were you called, because Christ also, what? He suffered for us, leaving us a, what? Example that you should follow his steps. Now, many times this Bible passage is understood in a general context, that we are to follow the example of Jesus in everything. And although that is true, the actual context of the passage is in the context of suffering. What is the context? Suffering. Jesus suffered for us, and in that suffering, he has left a what? An example of how we ought to respond when we come into our time of suffering. The crisis at the close, the time of earth's history when God's people are going to be standing alone in their relationship with God is going to be a time of suffering. And during that time of suffering, we need to look to Jesus as our example of how we ought to respond and live. Listen to how the passage continues. Uh, It says this in verse 22 and 23, who did know what? Let me ask you a question. When you're suffering, is it hard to not sin? Don't answer that question. We all know that that's difficult. But as Jesus was suffering, this example that he has left us, the Bible tells us in the midst of that suffering, and we're going to see it in our study together this morning, that in the midst of that suffering, he did know what? That is not human, that is divine. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, meaning he didn't say hateful words against those who were persecuting him and causing him to suffer. It goes on, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, 
When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that what? Judges righteously. I don't know about you, but I want to put my, hand, my life in the hands of God. Amen? This is the example that we need to follow as we come into this, to, into this hour of crisis in our lives. The hour of suffering that is before us, we want to follow the example of Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me, just in passing here, this word example in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 21, it's the only time that it's used in the New Testament. And it's interesting that the word conveys something very interesting. The word is used in a Greek context. The word was used to refer to when a teacher would give his students a copy of the Greek alphabet. And from that copy, they would, give, uh, they would, they would copy that example, or from that example, they would copy the alphabet of the Greek alphabet. And so basically what Peter is telling us here is that Jesus is the example or the copy and we are to follow him as an example in our lives, specifically in the example of suffering. He is the copy that we are to follow. Now in our study together last week, we looked at the time when the mob came to take Jesus away to his trials. Now... We say trials because it wasn't just one. There were actually six trials that Jesus went through before he was ultimately crucified. We're going to look at those six trials over the next couple of studies together. But as we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the mob cruelly laid their hands upon him, we found that Judas, as we know, was the one who betrayed Jesus, this man who had walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And as we looked at that, we saw that Jesus told us that in the last days that our worst enemies would be those of our very own household. And as we looked at that story, what we found is that when that man who was so close to Jesus betrayed him, there was no guile that was found in Jesus' mouth. But what did he say to Judas? As Judas laid his disgusting lips on the face of Jesus in a kiss of betrayal, what did Jesus say to Judas? He said what? Friend. He called him a friend, an act, a word of endearment in that time of trial, in that time of betrayal, and then as it led on into that time of persecution. And brothers and sisters, what we find is that same character that Jesus manifested when Judas betrayed him is the same character that we see in the life of Jesus as he goes from one trial after another all through those six trials until his ultimate death upon the cross. That character of love to those who have mistreated him. Now I want to ask you a question this morning. And maybe you've wrestled with this question before in your own personal life. I don't know. The question is this, why does God allow his children to suffer? It's clearly obvious here as you look at the story of Jesus that God, it was God's will for Jesus to suffer. It was God's will for Jesus to go through these six trials. It was God's will for him to be crucified on the cross to die for our sins. Why does God allow humans to persecute other humans. Now, I think there's a lot of answers to this question, and we can get very philosophical in trying to answer it, but I want to give you a simple answer that I think is worth contemplating this morning, and that is because God is using us as a demonstration. He's using us as a what? As a demonstration. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9, you can just write that down, that the Bible says, we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are a what? We are a spectacle. God is using his people as a demonstration that even in times of suffering, that even in times of persecution, that even in times of trial and difficulty, they will maintain their spiritual integrity. And that is the greatest evidence that Satan is a liar and that God is truth. 
Maybe God allows you to go through a trial because he wants to use you as a demonstration. I don't know, maybe you've experienced this before where you have met somebody who's gone through a dark period in their life. God brought them through that valley, and as they've come out of that valley, the sunshine of the morning is shining in their eyes. And as they share that experience of that darkness, that trial, that suffering, that, tr- that difficult time that they went through, as they share that experience, it is a demonstration of God's sustaining power even in the times of difficulty. Brothers and sisters, as this time of crisis comes at the close, God is wanting to use you as a demonstration to silence the accusations of Satan. Somebody ought to say amen to that. What a privilege that God wants to use me to silence the accusations of Satan that God is unjust. Now, listen to me carefully this morning. This concept needs to be very clear in your mind. It's something that you need to go back and wrestle with. Because when you come to that hour of darkness, when you come to that hour of trial and crisis in your life, if this concept is not clear in your mind, you will be tempted like Peter and the other disciples to deny Jesus and to turn your back on him. Popular Christianity today you know, gives the picture or paints the picture that if you are faithful to God, that all that comes to you is nothing but blessing. And that if you are not faithful to God, then curses come up, a curse will come upon you or trials will come upon you. Sounds very similar to the Jewish mindset, doesn't it? But that's not the notion that we see in Scripture this morning. Neither is it in the notion that we see throughout Scripture. And this is something we need to have clear in our minds as we enter into this time of crisis at the close that God faithfully stands next to his children in both the good and the bad times. Now, before we actually get into our study together this morning, I want to share with you something that I think is important for you to think about. Satan, as you may or may not know, is spending time studying your character. What is he doing? He spends time studying your character. And as he studies your character, he is trying to find the weak spots in your character. Do you have any weak spots in your character? He tries to find those weak spots in your character and what will trigger a negative response. What will make you impatient. And what he wants to do is he wants to use that to trip you up. Not just today but at the very end. Because listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. Whether the devil trips you up now is of little consequence. But when the crisis at the close comes and we are at the very end of this earth's history and Christ is just moments away from coming in the clouds of heaven, if the devil can trip you up in that dark hour, he's got you right where he wants you. So he's studying you. He wants to know where the weaknesses are in your character. For some people, the weakness is physical pain. For some, it's ridicule. For others, it's abandonment. And Jesus went through every single one of those things and came out victorious. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that you probably know a couple of areas in your life that are weak. Yeah? Do you know a couple of character areas that are weak in your life? That you need to strengthen? Here's what we need to do. We need to be prayerfully considering and asking the Lord, Father, please show me the weaknesses in my character. Because many times we want to emphasize the strengths in our character. We want people to see the good side in us. But we need to ask the Lord to show us those weaknesses in our lives so that we can, by his grace and through his strength, strengthen those weaknesses so that when that hour of crisis comes, Satan will not find anything in us. In fact, notice what the Bible says. Jesus is talking here in John chapter 14 and verse 30. He says, the prince of this world cometh and what? Hath nothing in me. What does that mean? It simply means that Satan did not have any foothold in Jesus' life. And so when the hour of crisis came, when that 
when that crisis hour squeezed Jesus, all that came out was good and not bad because Satan had no foothold in his life. Now, I want you to buckle up your seatbelts and listen to this next statement. It is very powerful. Listen to this. This is from Great Controversy, page 623. It says this. She's directly commenting on the passage that I just read. She says, this, what Jesus said, the devil has come and has nothing in me, this is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. Did you catch that? This must be the condition of those who will stand when that hour of trouble comes their way. What is it that must be the condition that the devil comes and finds what? Nothing in me. That means that before the crisis comes, by the grace of God, I am strengthening those char- my character, those weak spots, and I am removing the footholds of the enemy out of my life. Listen to me carefully, friends. If we come to the crisis hour and the devil has a foothold in our lives, we will not be successful, but we will be defeated. That's why right now is the time that we need to be following the example of Jesus because it's only as we look to him as our example that we will be able to stand in this hour of trial. There's a reason why Ellen White tells us that we should spend a thoughtful hour each day in the contemplation of the life of Christ. It's not just a fancy statement. It's not just something that helps us to feel good inside. But it's a principle that as we behold his life, as we behold his character, this becomes our experience. That the devil has no foothold in my life. By God's grace, this will be our experience. Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles As we look at the first trial of Jesus to John, the 18th chapter. As I mentioned, there were six that Jesus went through. This morning, we're looking at the first two. The title of our sermon, Crisis at the Close, the Trials, Part 1. John, chapter 18, is where we are going to as we look at the first trial of Jesus. Jesus first stands before the ex-high priest, uh, and he there, uh, uh, ex-high priest Annas. Then he is shipped off from Annas to Caiaphas. From Caiaphas, he stands before the Sanhedrin. Then from the Sanhedrin, he goes to Pilate, then Herod, and then Pilate again. Those are the six trials that Jesus goes through this morning. We will look at the first two. It's just past midnight in the early hours of Friday morning. The mob has now hurried Jesus from the sanctuary of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. They have hurried him through the stillness of the dark night from the garden to Annas' place. And as they bring him there before Annas the high priest, he was considered to be a very cunning individual, very intelligent. And although he was not the acting high priest at the time, he was uh, the ex-high priest, he was Caiaphas's father-in-law, the Jewish nation as a whole looked to him with great respect. In fact, many of the Jews regarded Annas' words as though they were the word of God itself. Placed him in a very high position. And there was fear that Caiaphas in his lack of experience might not be able to gain from Jesus what was necessary to condemn him to death. And so they brought him to Annas first because they hoped that his wisdom, in his wisdom, he would be able to secure a cause to bring Jesus to death. There were two things that needed to be established before Jesus could be condemned. Number one, he would have to be condemned by some sort of Jewish law. It would have to be proved that he broke in some Jewish law or Jewish, Jewish tradition. And number two, and more importantly, he would have to, it would have to be proved that he broke some Roman law. So before Jesus could ultimately be condemned to die, he would have to be proved, or it would have to be proven that he broke Roman and Jewish law. John chapter 18, verse 19, notice what the Bible says. The high priest, that is Annas, then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his what? Doctrine. 
Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple where, uh, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I done nothing. Now, that's very interesting because the Jews and the religious leaders were used to working under the cover of secrecy, right? Many of the plottings that took place for the crucifixion of Jesus was all done in secret. And here Jesus says, listen, I don't operate under the cover of darkness. I don't operate under the cover of secrecy. I have openly declared my doctrine, and all of your spies that you have sent out to follow me wherever I go, they have heard my doctrine. And then he says this in verse 21, why ask thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I have said. Now, it's interesting. As you look at Annas' question, the first thing he asks Jesus is about his doctrine. And from there, he is trying to establish that Jesus had broke some Roman law. It's almost like Annas is going in for the kill right from the very beginning. He wants to gain something that will condemn him in Roman courts, but he is foiled in his attempt. Jesus very eloquently puts Annas to silence with his response to his question. In fact, listen to this in Desire of Ages, page 703. Incidentally, if you don't have a copy of the book Desire of Ages, you can stop at our resource desk and we'd be happy to get one for you. But she says this, Desire of Ages, page 703. She says, Christ said nothing that could give his accusers a what? That's wisdom right there. And I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters, under the pressure that Jesus was under, if he went into that experience humanly, in human wisdom and in human strength, he would have said something that would have given his accusers an advantage. But because he went, under there, it went in there in calmness, in the stillness, dignified, knowing that he was doing his Father's will, he was able to carefully choose his words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he gave his accusers nothing that would give them an advantage over him. Verse 22, the Bible goes on. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? We're told in the book Desire of Ages the reason why that man smacked Jesus in the face. And it was because when Jesus responded to Annas' question about his doctrine, there was nothing that Annas could say. He was silenced at that point. This man of great dignity in Roman society this man of great respect by the Jewish people had been completely silenced by the wisdom of Jesus. And the man who smacked Jesus in the face was so indignant that Annas had been silenced that he took his hand and he smacked the face of God. There's a couple things we learn as we watch Jesus in the court of Annas. You read, he spoke nothing that gave his accusers an advantage. But more importantly, brothers and sisters, I believe that part, the first thing, he spoke no, nothing that gave his accusers an advantage. That will come naturally as we are possessed by the Holy Spirit. But more importantly, Jesus was self-controlled when he was dealt with in a very harsh manner. And we don't do too well when we're not treated very nicely. Right? Everybody today wants justice. We want to be treated fairly. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, being a son or daughter of God, you are not going to be treated fairly. We need to get used to that. God will be fair with us. Of course he will. But the world is not going to be fair with you. How are you going to react in those kind of situations? 
How are you going to respond when you are treated in an unchristlike and unfair manner? Based on what we know from the life of Jesus in this period of his life, based on what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane when he referred to Judas as his friend, I can picture in my mind's eye, although it is not recorded in Scripture, that when that man struck Jesus in the face, that Jesus did not even have a look of hatred in his face. No guile was found in his mouth. As the pressure was squeezing Jesus in this crisis hour, only the atmosphere of heaven was coming out. I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. It hurts at the best times to get smacked in the face, but it hurts even more after you've been sweating great drops of blood. Harshly dealt with. This trial was very quick. It didn't last very long. Jesus now is going to be hurried off to sit before Caiaphas, the high priest. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, and we will look at Matthew's account of this. There's also an account in Mark as well. Matthew 26 is where we are going. It's Friday morning, as I've already mentioned. It's dark outside. The angry mob are rushing Jesus now over to Caiaphas. Annas has been foiled. His attempts have been foiled. Caiaphas, we are told that he was just as unscrupulous as Annas was. He was not about to let Jesus slip out of his hands. You see, the Jewish leaders realized that if they did not act quickly, that there would be people who had been healed by Jesus who would come forward and give testimony. There would be the blind who had received their sight that would come and give testimony. There would be the lame who had been able to, were given the ability to walk again, who would come and give testimony. There would be people who would give testimony that would foil their attempt. And so they had to do this under the cover of darkness. They had to do this in an unjust manner, and they had to act quickly and move fast to be able to secure the condemnation of Jesus. And now they resort to the basis of manner, or basis of principles to try to secure Jesus' condemnation. Listen to this before we read from the Bible. This is from the book Desire of Ages, page 704. We are told this. As Caiaphas looked, now looked upon the prisoner, he was struck with admiration for his noble and dignified bearing. Listen to this. A conviction came over him that this man was akin to God. The next instant, he scornfully banished the thought. This is a very powerful thought to me for this reason. As I just mentioned, Caiaphas was a very unscrupulous man. He had no bones at doing things in an underhanded manner. But just standing in the presence of Jesus, nothing had come out of the mouth of Jesus yet at this point. Nothing had been said. He is simply in the presence of Jesus and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit falls upon him. I don't know about you, but I want that atmosphere to go around with me. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? I want that atmosphere to pervade around me so that when I come into the, into the presence of other people that the Holy Spirit is with me and can work on the hearts of other people that are there just by my presence being there. Jesus brought with him the atmosphere of heaven into that court, into that puppet trial. She goes on, page 705, and she says this, the people compared the excited and malignant deportment of Annas and Caiaphas with the calm, majestic bearing of Jesus. Chaos, peace. She goes on and she says this. Listen to this. Even in the midst of that hardened multitude arose the question, is this man of godlike presence to be condemned as a criminal? 
Again, the presence of Jesus as he came into that trial, the Holy Spirit was with him. The atmosphere of heaven was with him wherever he went and hearts were being touched. The Spirit was convicting these people that this man was the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, I believe that in the last days, as God's people enter into the crisis at the close, that they will carry with them the same atmosphere of heaven. That the same Holy Spirit that was carried with Jesus wherever he went and worked on the hearts, bringing conviction to the conscience of people, will be the same Holy Spirit that will go with God's people as they go from one place to another, from one jail cell to another, from one mock trial to another, from one mistreatment to the other. The Holy Spirit will go with us if we allow him to, and that Spirit will work on the hearts, and by God's grace, there will be conversions because of it. We first need to let that Holy Spirit convert our own hearts before he can be carried with us to work on the hearts of other people. Caiaphas was a very intelligent man. He could see that in the face of the people, they were beginning to have sympathy towards the man. He wanted to act quickly to take away that sympathy and replace it with a vengeance of destruction. So the Bible says, Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 60, let's go to verse 59. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the councils sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none, at at last two false witnesses came. Verse 61, and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. It's interesting. They resorted now, I mean, they paid Judas off, gave him 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus, and now they're using underhanded manner, underhanded methods to bring in false witnesses. They bribe them, probably with money or various other things, position, prestige, whatever it may be. They bribe these false witnesses. And as one false witness after another came in to that trial and bore false witness, they did not agree with one another. And there Jesus stands, majestically, nobly, he stands before his accusers. Not a word comes from his mouth. He just stands there, and the chaos becomes thicker and thicker as one false accusation comes and contradicts the previous one. There is a frustration that begins to be created inside that judgment hall as these contradictions begin to take place. And finally, one man comes forward, and this is the best that they could do. It said, Jesus said that I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Now, you will notice very quickly that this has nothing to do with the Roman Empire. If they were going to secure a condemnation by the Romans, and they had to in order to kill a person, they couldn't kill anybody by Jewish law alone. They had to get the Roman law involved. This had nothing to do with Roman law. only had anything to do with Jewish law. But even this was misconstrued because what Jesus really said in John chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He said nothing about himself destroying it. He actually said that they would destroy it. And of course, we know he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his what? But this was the best that they could do. False witnesses came in. In fact, Mark says that neither so did their witness agree together. So even their witness was a contradiction. But this was the best that they could do. Caiaphas was desperate. He needed something to secure Jesus' condemnation. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, and I love this passage, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet what? He opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he what? 
open not his mouth. Jesus would not open his mouth to defend himself. He spoke, but not in self-defense, as we're going to see here in just a few moments. Notice what the Bible says in verse 63. Verse 63, the Bible says, But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answering said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. At this, Jesus could no longer remain silent. He would not defend himself, but he would defend his father's character. And so in answer to this adjournment by the high priest, Jesus says in verse 64, Jesus said unto him, thou hast said, or in Mark chapter 14, verse 62, he says, I am. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Jesus says, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Filled with a satanic fury, Caiaphas' face becomes uh, construed. It gets this look of anger upon it as he stands up from his royal seat. As he looks into the face of Jesus, the Bible tells us he tears his clothes and shouts blasphemy that this man would take the position of God. Verse 65, it says this, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witness? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? He's trying to carry the crowd along with him in, con- in condemning Jesus to death. Listen to this statement from Desire of Ages, page 608. It says, Little did Caiaphas realize its meaning that is, when he tore his clothes. In this act done to influence the judges and secure Christ's condemnation, listen carefully, the high priest had condemned himself. By the law of God, he was disqualified from the priesthood. He had pronounced upon himself the death sentence. God had, you know, the the high priest's garments were made uh, very carefully. They were made in a perfect manner because they were to represent the perfect character of Christ. There was no blemishes in them, and they were not to be rent. It was a custom of the Jews that when they were uh, sad or distraught or heard something like this, a blasphemous thing, that they would rent their clothes, but the high priest was not supposed to do that under the penalty of death. But as the Jews were known for doing, they made a man-made law that only under the circumstance of blasphemy could they rent their clothes. Thus, the laws of God were made of none effect through the laws of man. Caiaphas had disqualified himself, and in trying to pronounce death upon Jesus, he pronounced death Upon himself. Well, the Bible continues there in verse 66. Caiaphas asks the question, What think ye? And the Bible says, They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. Influence is a powerful thing. Caiaphas used his influence, and he influenced other people to condemn the Son of God. And God has given to every one of us influence. Maybe your influence is limited. Maybe you have more influence. But influence is powerful. And I want to encourage you to use it for the cause of God. Caiaphas carries the people with him, and they pronounce death. Upon Jesus, he is guilty of death. Verse 7, Desire of Ages, page 710, goes on and it says this. The ignorant rabble had seen the cruelty with which he, that is Jesus, was treated before the council. And from this, they took license to manifest all the satanic elements of their nature. 
what, is she, what she's saying here is this. As the people observed how the leaders were treating Jesus, they took that as license and permission for them also to mistreat Jesus. She goes on, Christ's very nobility and godlike bearing goaded them to madness. His meekness, his innocence, his majestic patience filled them with hatred born of Satan. Mercy and justice were trampled upon. Never was a criminal treated in so inhumane a manner as was the Son of God. Never had one been mistreated as Jesus had been. I want to encourage you with something this morning. I have met people who have left the church and who have given up on God because they've been mistreated by the clergy. We've all heard about it. In fact, maybe we have family members who were mistreated by those of religious leadership who have left the church. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, there was never one who was more mistreated by religious people than Jesus. And he never gave up on his relationship with God. I want to encourage you with that. Because those in religious leadership make mistakes. We mistreat people, not necessarily, you know, premeditated, but sometimes accidentally, sometimes, God forbid that it happened here, it is done on purpose with the intention of chasing that person away. But brothers and sisters, we need to look to Jesus as our example. He is our example in the times of suffering. When we are mistreated, when we are looked down upon, when we are ridiculed even by the pastor himself, we never let hold of our hand and our hold upon God. Because our relationship with God is not dependent upon our relationships with other people. Our walk with the Lord is not dependent upon how somebody else treats me. My relationship with God is independent of how others treat me or mistreat me. And there we see Jesus, and I'm not going to go into the details. You can look at it on your, yourself in the book Desire of Ages because she goes into great detail on how they treated Jesus at this point. Covering his head, hitting him in the head, saying, prophesy unto us who it is that has hit you. These people were filled with demonic fury as they saw the character of God in Jesus, as they saw these, character, this, these, these Christ-like attributes and principles under the most trying of circumstances. It filled them with the demonic fury, and they just poured their wrath down upon the Son of God as he stood there in Caiaphas's court, and Caiaphas and his father-in-law did nothing to stop them. Brothers and sisters, you can't do this. You just can't do this on your own. And if they treated Jesus this way, how will they treat the followers of Jesus? Sometimes I think we have kind of a fairy tale idea of the end days. But there will be martyrs in the last days. There will be people who die because they believe in Jesus. There will be people who die for Jesus in the last days. They will be mistreated as Jesus was mistreated. All of this stuff that we're looking at here, this is what God's people have to look forward to in the crisis at the close. But brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something this morning. When God's people go through that hour of crisis, they're not looking at the trial. They're looking at the glory of what they're going to receive in the afterlife. 
They're looking at the, uh, the, 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 the reward that is soon to come because in the mind of God's children who are going through this intense persecution as they're being squeezed by that crisis at the close, they know that by Bible prophecy, Christ's coming is very soon. They will be encouraged with the reality that if they hold on just a little longer, if they remain faithful to God in this trying of earth circumstances, even if it costs them their life, that soon they will be reunited with their heavenly father in the kingdom of heaven. That is what God's people will be thinking about and looking for as they go through this trial at the close. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, the Bible tells us, here is the patience of the saints. Here is the what? Here is the patience of the saints. Now, again, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago in our, in our sermon on patience. And as we looked at that passage, we found that it comes right after the third angel's message, which is the enforcement of the mark of the beast. That is a time of intense religious persecution. And as God looks down upon the earth during that time of intense religious persecution, he says, here is the patience of the saints. Jesus had patience in that most trying of circumstances. Brothers and sisters, God wants to give us the same experience, and I want it more than anything because I want to be with Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. The Bible tells us about those who walk during the time or walked during the time of the dark ages, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 32, the Bible says that the people that do what? The people that do what? Know their God will be what? They will be strong, the Bible tells us, and will do exploits, which means uh, they will take action. They will do things for God. The people that know their God will be strong. Did Jesus know his heavenly Father? Did it translate in strength into strength? He was weak in the eyes of men. He was feeble in the eyes of men. His body broke down from those beatings, but spiritually he could not be beat down. He was strong because he was thick with his heavenly father. He had a deep relationship, and brothers and sisters, the same thing that happened in the life of Jesus happened during the time of the dark ages. During the time of intense religious persecution in the 1,260 years of religious persecution that the Bible tells us in Daniel and Revelation, these people knew their God, and because they knew God, they were what? Strong. God's people in the last days, in order for them to have strength to stand in that crisis at the close, they need to what? Know God. The Bible tells us in John chapter 17 and verse 3, and this is life eternal, that they might, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hath sent. This is life eternal, that they might know thee. Not that they might know the latest fashions of the day, the latest gossip in Hollywood, the latest football, baseball, basketball scores. You know, there's some people in our church that can rattle that stuff up much more readily than what they learn in their devotions that morning. Come on now. This is life eternal that they might know God. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you the question, how well do you know your heavenly Father? Jesus knew his heavenly Father so well that even though he was going through the most intense of persecution and suffering, he knew that he was in his Father's will, that he was doing what his Father asked and that if he just remained faithful to his father, God's will would be done in his life. 
even though that dark hour was eclipsing him from his father's presence, even though the weight of the sin of the world was separating Jesus at this point, he knew his father so well because he walked with him. He talked with him for 33 years. He knew his father and he knew that he was in the middle of his father's will and that his father's approval was upon him. That gave him strength in that dark hour. It's not something that you acquire in the dark hour, brothers and sisters. It's something that we acquire now. Today. Getting to know him, walking with him, talking to him, learning to hear his voice and enjoy basking in his presence. I want to encourage you this next week to say, Lord, I want to know you more. I want the strength that Jesus had, that the reformers had. I want that same strength of knowing God to be something that I possess as well. How many of you want to say the same thing? Let's pray for that now. Father in heaven, As we look at this dark hour in the life of Jesus, it is beyond our human understanding how anybody could suffer in such a way and have their spiritual life intact. Lord, as I look at it, I say, there's no way. Mm -mm, There's no way that I could do that. When I look to you, I realize that all things are possible. Father, you've warned us. There is a crisis hour coming. And that now is our time of preparation. Father, as we prepare, we want to know you more than we do now. We crave that experience of hearing your voice, becoming accustomed to being in your presence to dislike not being in your presence. Father, we want to breathe the atmosphere of heaven that when that time of intense difficulty comes, it would be nothing but Jesus that comes out, no matter what man may heap upon us. Help us to this end, Lord, we pray, as we look to Jesus as our example. We thank you and we praise you for what you are doing in our lives. For we ask it in the merciful name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.